Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. This is an extra special edition of the podcast in honor of July 4th with an appropriately special guest, U.S. Ambassador to Israel Thomas Nides. He will talk to me and my co-host Amir Tibon about the U.S.-Israel relationship and preview the upcoming visit of President Joe Biden to Israel. Following that interview, something that Haaretz podcast listeners have surely been waiting for. As you may have heard, last week it was made official. Israel's Knesset has dissolved and we are heading to new fifth elections on November 1st. Now the best thing about fifth elections, and some people may say the only good thing about fifth elections, is that it means that Haaretz is reviving the Elections Overdose podcast. Elections Overdose was a huge hit during the fourth elections, where Anshel Pfeffer and Dalia Shenlin discussed, debated, and explained everything going on in the political boxing ring. And now they're doing it again. All that coming up. We are honored to have Thomas Nides with us. Tom Nides was confirmed as the U.S. ambassador to Israel back in November. He comes with a distinguished long record in private and public sector service. I won't talk about the whole list of accomplishments, but he was managing director and vice chairman of uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, which I'm sure is run just as efficiently as the Israeli government and the uh, American government. He was the U.S. State Department's deputy secretary of state for management and resources. He is also a self-described liberal Jew from Minnesota. Welcome to Harris Weekly. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And we are meeting just uh, hours after the Knesset officially dissolved itself and Israel entered another cycle of elections and also ahead of 4th of July weekend in the United States. So a lot to talk about, events happening over here, things happening over there, and President Biden's upcoming visit to the region. Speaking of 4th of July, though, Ellison, and since we are recording this in the old embassy building, the Tel Aviv branch of the U.S. Embassy, it brings some nostalgia from the past parties that they used to throw here. I remember, I mean, and at the ambassador's residence, the hot dogs, the ice cream. Ben and Jerry's, don't say it. Yeah, yeah we're not supposed to talk about Ben and Jerry's this week. Lots of, uh, lots of developments of Ben and Jerry's. But, um, you know, how are you celebrating uh, 4th of July this year uh, in Israel? And how does it feel to be not in the United States of America on this important holiday? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, guys. I'm, I'm a big reader of yours so and a fan of... Uh, uh, the newspaper, and I'll, I'll be a fan of the podcast if it goes okay. Uh, so let me uh, wait and see. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'm uh, I'm blessed. My wife will be joining me uh, for the Fourth of July with my daughter. Uh, my son was already here, so he'll come back. So they'll be here. We have our annual Fourth uh, of July party on the Fifth of July uh, this year in Jerusalem. Uh, obviously, the the house you described no longer exists. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to cry here on radio because no one can see that. <laughs> but I am. I'm no, just kidding. Uh, but we have. Uh, we have a great celebration, celebrating not only the the independence of the United States, but uh, celebrating with our friends in Israel and the government of Israel and, and some people that we want to to be with. So uh, I'm very excited about it, and obviously I'm thrilled to be here. It's a great opportunity for me personally, and a great honor to represent the United States uh, in Israel. So one thing you're probably not celebrating is the dissolution of the Knesset today, the end of the uh, coalition government of change headed by uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. 
in the past, you've said this is an amazing coalition. You've enjoyed working with them, that they're people who help you get things done because you're a guy who likes to get things done. And I would imagine particularly you're not happy about the fact that in this process of the dissolution of the Knesset, they decided not to pass legislation that would move the process forward of Israelis entering the U.S. visa waiver program, something that you've been working hard to happen in the lead up or you were trying to kind of act as a lobbyist, I think, you know, you you tweeted, don't lose momentum now. This will help Israeli citizens travel to the U.S., uh, put them first. Um, but it didn't happen because the Likud, the opposition forces, did not want the coalition to have that accomplishment uh, to point to. So how do you feel about this thing that you worked so hard on, sort of falling victim to partisan politics? Well, first of all, let, let's step back from it. Um, we have been trying to help and continue to work uh, to try to make it easier for Israelis to come to the United States. That, will, that was our goal. As you know, we've been trying to get this done for 15 years. Uh, all you need to do is wait in a line or try to register to get a visa. It's annoying for many Israelis, and so we felt as an important ally that we should try to do this again, okay? And we are trying to do this again. Uh, obviously, my, my tweet was not political, and that didn't need to be—it wasn't meant to be political. It was really about what we're trying to do for the Israeli people. Again, this is not for us. We, we get very little benefit out of it uh, vis-a-vis from the United States. I think it was important for Israelis and, quite frankly, for also— um, uh, Arab Americans who have had a difficult time going through Ben Gurion Airport to the West Bank, and that was going to be an element of this. That said, I still believe we'll get this done. Uh, I've had many calls from many uh, Knesset members who said, "Don't worry, we'll get this done." I believe that to be a case, and so I'm I'm confident because the Israeli people want this, and I think uh, politicians on the left, the center, the right, and everyone will understand this is for the Israeli people who don't want to stand in line anymore and register to get a visa. Again, that's our goal, and I'll work with anyone uh, to help get this done for the Israeli people. What's the main roadblock to achieving progress on this issue that you've identified so far? Well, as you know, this is a very complicated process. So this make, there's a reason why for 15 years they haven't been able to get this done. It's not because I'm such a spectacular ambassador. It's, it's complicated. First, the rejection rate needs to be below 3%. For Israelis going to ask for a visa, the rejection rate needs to be under 3%. I have no idea if we'll reach that goal. I'm confident we've done a really good job this year of convincing Israelis, don't come and ask for your visa unless you have the right photograph, you fill out the papers correctly, because that's really been most of the rejections. It hasn't been because we look at you and say, oh, you're going to stay in the United States. That's not the reason. It's because people have screwed that up. It's become a national project to get the rejection rate down. Yeah, so, so we've worked with the interior minister. We've worked with a bunch of companies. We have done a lot of public service announcements. So I am relatively confident that we'll get to under 3%, but there's no guarantees. That's, that's the minimum. And then there's a lot of laws that need to be changed in the Knesset. There also needs to be lots of security stuff that needs to be done in the United States. So this is a exceptionally complicated I think we can get there because at the end of the day, Israel is an enormously important ally to the United States. There's a des- huge desire among Israelis to visit the United States. We love that. Um, so hopefully as an ally, we can get this done. But we'll work with the Israeli government and we'll work with the U.S. government to try to get to the promised y- land. You're optimistic that there will be an Israeli government to work with after this election? <laughs> yeah. But I, listen, again, I, I think ultimately, um, as I've been told, even if the government, the Knesset, has is has been disbanded on issues that both the left and the right 
agree with, things can get passed. So I am confident, confident that over the next few weeks we'll be able to get this stuff resolved. Again, that's, by the way, even if they pass those those laws and they're still just the beginning of the process, we have still a long way to go to get this done. Uh, but I'm confident we can get it done. I would imagine that the big date on your calendar is not July 4th, but it's July 13th. And that is the day that, if all goes as planned, President Joe Biden is going to land in Israel for the first leg of his Mideast visit. Ideally, it's not the greatest timing. Uh, I'm sure that you've had a lot of plans to try to move the Israel-U.S. relationship forward, things that you can announce and highlight in this visit. And yet now, when you've got a caretaker prime minister, when you've got a temporary government, when you've got an election campaign raging, everything gets politicized. Are you at all concerned that any accomplishments that uh, you managed to uh, announce during this visit uh, will be interpreted as sort of giving uh, Yair Lapid as a boost as he stands there next to uh, the president uh, during the visit? Not at all. Listen, we, I've said at the beginning, even before we knew uh, the potential of this government dissolving and a caretaker prime minister was in place, Joe Biden is coming here for the Israeli people. He's not coming for one party or another. Joe Biden, this will be his 10th trip to Israel. Joe Biden calls himself a Zionist. Joe Biden knows more about the Middle East and Israel than probably any politician in the history of the United States, given his care and desire. Remember, this is a guy who was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, vice president for eight years, and now president of the United States. So, and he, you know, he cares about this place. So it's not made up. It's not, oh my gosh, we're going to cancel because, you know, there's a little confusion with the leadership here in, in Israel. So again, we're coming for the Israeli people. He's going to have a visit, obviously, uh, in, in Israel. He will also go and spend time with uh, President Abbas in the West Bank. Uh, and we will work with people. And we want the objective of the trip is quite simple, to, to make sure people understand this unbreakable bond the United States has with Israel and Joe Biden's personal commitment to Israel's security. So in my view, uh, as the show will go on, uh, it will be, uh, I think, believed to be a great um, visit, and I'm very confident that the Israeli people will see what I see in what Joe Biden can provide and the leadership he provides vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East. And after visiting Israel, his next stop is going to be Saudi Arabia. Can you just tell us already what is going to happen with the normalization deal that everybody is expecting? There are so many hints. There are so many questions. Yeah, let me be clear. We, we're not going to be announcing a normalization with Saudi Arabia on this trip. I don't think any, that, that if people's expectations. What we are going to do is show um, the importance of regional security. We are going to show the importance of uh, Joe Biden working with not only Saudi Arabia, but the other GCC countries, as he's done in NATO this week, as he did in Asia the, uh, three weeks earlier. Uh, it's very important to show the world that we can work together. So uh, listen, in a dreamy way, would I love at some point in the in, in, in some time in the future that the, the relationship with Saudi Arabia and Israel becomes, quote, normalized? 100 percent. Do it, will it happen on this event? No, it won't. But we begin a process of, more importantly, showing uh, regional security, which for the Israeli people and for the Saudis and for all the part of GCC, people will be, uh, I think, uh, excited to see. And it is a very positive move uh, on behalf of, uh, of the United States.
Reports ahead of the trip from the West Bank, from the Palestinian side, um, are very negative, saying that they're unhappy, that they're fuming that Biden has not taken action on uh, reopening the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem, and that the Palestinians, as a result, have been largely boycotting the Palestinian affairs unit. What will be Biden's message when he visits the West Bank? Well, we we actually believe um, actions speak louder than words. Um, As you know, this president, over the last year and a half, uh, went from the previous administration having basically zero of any financial help to the Palestinians. And this is not a, I don't do politics anymore, but that's just a reality. Um, this president came in the office. We're now uh, giving almost $600 million uh, to the Palestinian people, uh, to the Palestinian people. That includes education and health care and water projects. I spend a lot of time in my day working on behalf of trying to help the Palestinian people. We'll have a bunch of announcements around that. Um, our commitment to the, to the Palestinian people is to articulate and focus on the importance of a two-state solution and making sure the vision of a two-state solution continues to be robust and front and center uh, in this president's mind and the, and the American people. So I, again, uh, we're going we're gonna to see President Abbas. He'll spend time with with President Boss about our vision of our hopes and our and our desires, um, so I don't listen again. I we work every day with uh, the Palestinian people and our and our team here uh, in uh, Jerusalem uh, works very closely with the leadership uh, daily. So I'm relatively confident that message will come out uh, loud and clear. But if the vision is for two states, wouldn't opening the consulate for the future state be a huge statement in terms of uh, laying the ground for that? As, as, I've, as we have said, we want to open the consulate. We've, we've articulated at the beginning that we want to open the consulate. Obviously, uh, we'll continue to articulate that to the uh, new incoming caretaking government. Uh, and you know, again, over time, we hope to, to achieve that goal. How much of this regional security issue that you mentioned earlier focused on Iran? Uh, is the president's message basically going to be to Israel and the Saudis and the other regional allies, we have your back against the Iranians? Listen, as someone used to say, your common enemy is your friend. Um, obviously, there's no question that we're focused on Iran, Iran's aggression here, certainly in Israel, and the proxies, uh, Hezbollah and Lebanon and Syria. Uh, we've spent obviously an enormous amount of time working with regional partners for the security not only of Israel but the threats that you know Saudi Arabia has vis-a-vis what was going on with the, with the Hutus, uh, with with the strikes would happen in uh, the UAE. We're all in the same boat here. Everyone has different objectives, but people feel a, a sense of uh, anxiety in the region, and we hope to continue working on these issues collectively. There's no better when you work together to be able to keep the security blanket uh, closely held. And one interesting thing that happened under this Israeli government that just fell apart is that while we saw still there were sometimes disagreements between Israel and the U.S. on Iran, they seemed to be contained. We did not have the public confrontations that we recalled from the Netanyahu-Obama years. Uh, is that something that you assume will continue? Uh, moving forward with the uh, Lapid caretaker government and after the election? Or are we, are we heading toward more of a clash on this? No, listen, Joe Biden made a commitment to uh, then uh, Prime Minister Bennett, and we'll continue making that to Prime Minister Lapid. We, there's no secrets between our two countries, okay? 
Uh, everything we did in the negotiations, the second negotiation at JCPOA, we did with full transparency with Israel. I am not suggesting they liked it. There's no animosity. There's no games being played. We are, we are, we have articulated over and over again our desire to have a diplomatic answer to the Iran situation, and we've also told very clearly the Israelis that we're not, we're not tying their hands on actions they did believe they need to keep this country secure. So again. Uh, we've had a very, very strong relationship with not only the IDF and the security forces and, and the prime minister and the foreign minister and the defense minister. You know, I talk to these guys every single day, and I think ultimately that will continue under Prime Minister Lapid, and it will continue whatever government is set up here because that's how Joe Biden behaves. That's how Joe Biden conducts his foreign policy, and that's how we will conduct our foreign policy. When you speak to these officials every single day, I'm sure the topic of Ukraine comes up. Israel, from the beginning, has been walking a very delicate tightrope on Ukraine, and the U.S. has criticized in the very beginning Israel's reluctance to more full-throatedly, full-heartedly back Ukraine and restrain its criticism of uh, Russia in order to maintain its access to uh, Syrian uh, airspace on its uh, northern border. Uh, increasingly, though, even though the amount of criticism has been limited, uh, Russia has uh, increasingly threatened to uh, reduce Israel's uh, freedom of action. Is the United States government satisfied with the way that Israel is behaving on the Ukraine issue? Yes. I mean, we have conversations with the Israelis all the time, and obviously uh, we uh, push them uh, and uh, cajole and talk about things that we want to do. And and in, 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 mo in most cases, Israel is quite receptive to that. We're also aware, as you all are, um, the uniqueness of Israel's position vis-a-vis -vis their own security in, in northern Israel, given the idea of needing to deconflict with the Russians to go after Hezbollah, which threatened the security of the state of Israel. So we're both pushing, understanding, we're satisfied with what they're doing, and if things change, we'll continue to to cajole and to push and work with what you do with allies, right? This Israel is a single exceptionally important ally to the United States. The security of Israel is of utmost importance to the United States, as well as Israel's help security with the United States. So it goes both ways. So we're very comfortable with the position right now in Ukraine. And if things change on the ground, we'll continue to communicate directly with the Israelis. Moving to another global topic, China. This has been an area where we have seen some tensions between several U.S. administrations and Israeli governments in recent years, including the previous Trump administration. Where do things stand today? When the president comes here in about uh, two weeks, is he going to press the Israeli government to limit Chinese involvement in all kinds of projects in Israel, to try to re-examine some uh, infrastructure uh, deals that have already been made. Where, where does that stand? Well, first of all, you know, uh, Israel is a sovereign nation. We can't tell the Israelis what to do. Uh, we can encourage them, uh, as we have encouraged others, to, uh, to have a robust vetting system here. Um, as you know, um, the United States uh, has a, a vetting system called CFIUS, which basically looks at uh, deals uh, that either are being transacted in the United States and, and do they qualify from a national security perspective or not. And we encourage Israel to do that. Israel is uniquely uh, positioned given the fact that their technology leadership and the dual use of that technology and where that technology and whose hands that technology gets into. So we're, uh, we are con continuing those conversations with Israel a lot. 
And they are very receptive to those desires of ours to make sure that they continue to have a robust process in place, including a purchase of strategic assets here. I think all of our, our friends and allies are learning about what the process here is vis-a-vis the Chinese and their objectives. Um, so I think at this point, we feel like we're, we're trending in the right direction. And obviously, we'll continue those uh, dialogues. I know you're not in politics anymore, but um, one of the accomplishments that uh, Bennett and Lapide have pointed to you know, over the past year was an effort that they made to repair their relationship with the Democratic Party uh, in the United States. Israel had a very close relationship with the Trump White House. Survey after survey showed that uh, Israelis uh, you know, supported the former president uh, almost more than citizens of uh, any other uh, country uh, in the world. And Democrats have been increasingly viewed with suspicion and dislike due to uh, some of the bad blood that flowed in during the Obama years, and particularly because of some of the rhetoric of members of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, I don't know if any of that hostility or suspicion um, extended to uh, Democratic appointees to the ambassadorship, but have you found any of these partisan factors to have played any kind of a role as you interact with Israelis? No, not at all. First of all, Joe Biden loves Israel, okay? Joe Biden, as I said earlier, will be on his 10th trip here. Joe Biden continually refers to his his idea that he is a non-Jewish Zionist, okay? Joe Biden talks about his, you know, his his meeting with gold in my ear. I don't, no one's going to hold a light to Joe Biden's commitment and love uh, for the state of Israel. And that obviously extends to their, uh, to the American ambassador and my love and desire for this country. And I think ultimately I'm, the, the reality is just look at the vote on the Iron Dome. The Iron Dome and the House represent. I think there were six members of Congress that didn't vote for the uh, the final passage of Iron Dome. So this whole idea that one party or another party, everyone is very pro-Israel. Yes, do do people disagree? Of course, we, the United States is a democracy, just like people disagree here about what some of the decisions that some of the people in the government made. So I'm quite comfortable with the bipartisan nature of the the importance of Israel, the security of the state of Israel, the the importance of keeping this a democratic Jewish state, uh, which is why we promote a two-state solution. This is why we talk about this unbreakable bond between our two countries. So I'm, I'm quite comfortable. It is very interesting that Joe Biden has met uh, every Israeli prime minister since Golda Meir. I don't think there is a single Israeli politician who has achieved that. Uh, <laughs> Shimon Peres at one point. But is he going to meet on this trip also the previous prime minister, Netanyahu, now the leader of the opposition? Who he has known for 40 years. Yeah, I, listen again, um, uh, I don't have, I can't, I'm not giving out the details of the schedule, but in, in normal, in, I think we traditionally have met the leaders of the, of the opposition. I'm sure that will continue. It's tradition regardless of its former prime minister Netanyahu or whoever that would be. So he is obviously the, the leader of the opposition and, the, and certainly courtesies will be extended to him, I assume. I, again, I haven't seen all the details of the schedule, but my work assumption. How difficult is it to prepare this kind of presidential visit when until today, this morning, you did not know for sure who is even going to be the prime minister when the president lands, right? Because there was a chance until a few days ago, it would still be Prime Minister Bennett. Uh, but then there was the situation that maybe it's Prime Minister Lapid, or maybe some other government would have been formed. Uh, how do you prepare a diplomatic visit of this, you know, um, importance under these circumstances? Very carefully. No, here's the deal. Um, one thing it's important to understand um, first of all, Bennett and Lapid 
have a really had a really close working relationship. So I never felt that there was any competition between the two of them, or that there was some sort of sense. If I tell uh, Prime Minister Bennett one thing, I had to worry about what uh, Foreign Minister Lapide. So my view that that was fine. And and quite frankly, if if there was a different outcome and somehow someone else became uh, the acting prime minister or the prime minister, we'd work with them. Again, we're here for the Israeli people. Obviously, it's important who leadership is and that we're, we're obviously focused on that, who greets them at the bottom of the stairs of Air Force One as it lands at Ben-Gurion. But again, this is about the Israeli people, and I gotta, we keep focus on that objective, and that's how we will be successful. What do you think, looking forward, is the, whether it's to the presidential visit or even a bit ahead, the, the most important issue right now for the two countries to agree on in the coming weeks, months that you're working on right now? I mean, listen, number one, I, you know, I tell people, you know, my objective is, is one, to make sure that, that Israelis understand and realize how important this unbreakable bond is with the United States and Israel, Okay. I think they get it. I think they get the, the idea that this, this is a relationship. And it's, by the way, it's both ways. It's not just America taking care of their ally Israel. It's Israel unbond in a bonding relationship with the United States. So that, I got to make sure I articulate that. I also need to make sure that everyone, no one loses sight of the importance of a two-state solution. And I say that no, that's, because— That's going to be a difficult task during an election season No, no, but, I, but again, you can, you can again, I'm not any—I don't, I'm in no illusions I'm getting the Nobel Peace Prize sitting in the, in the Rose Garden. Although, quite frankly, if they want to offer it to me, I'm more than happy to accept it. But the idea of keeping a vision of a two-state solution alive is important both for the Palestinian people and for Israel and for to keep this place a democratic Jewish state, which is exceptionally important to President Biden and for all of us, I, I believe, as listening those of us who are uh, the ambassador and the people who work here. Uh, so I think those are our key objections. And I will tell you, uh, the president will articulate the importance of the Abraham Accords and the economics. I mean, the Abraham Accords has changed the dynamics uh, in this country and in the region. And I think the foreign administration needs to get credit for that because I think it's exceptionally important. Uh, and I think we'll be focusing on uh, those issues as well. So that's kind of, you know, my, my objectives are a reflection of the administration's objectives. And those are the message that President Biden will be articulating while he's here. Just as a final open question, again, you've been here for six months. What has surprised you the most about Israel, about Israelis? Do you have a newly discovered cuisine, restaurant, pastime in Israel? Anything, uh, anything strike you about uh, Israel that, uh, that didn't, you weren't expecting when you came into the job? <laughs> there's, there's two words that I'm going to basically exit from my vocabulary. Okay, the two words is come visit, okay? Because everyone comes and visits, okay? You know, I've now seen... You know, 87 members of Congress since I've been here, okay? <laughs> you know, a dozen governors, you know, you know, uh, 50 mayors, you know, you know, every person who's given any money to the UJA. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a joke, actually. Uh, but, but most importantly, here's what's right. I knew intellectually that people love this place. I knew it intellectually because I've been here a lot, right? But I didn't know how much they love this place and, and how much people care about this place. And they have opinions about this place. And so it even makes my job that much more difficult, but also that much more thrilling, right? I mean, I, I, I certainly have the, the most visited and um, discussed uh, ambassadorship probably in the world, okay? And to me, again, as a little Jewish kid from Minnesota, that's a big deal. 
And for me, that's what I, what's is not only surprised me, but it's honored me as well. Well, that's a lovely note to end on. We'll wrap things up. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Ambassador. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy 4th of July. You too as well. Thank you, guys. Coming up next, our Elections Overdose Preview with Anshel Pfeffer and Dahlia Shenlin. Hi, I'm Anshul Pfeffer. And I'm Dahlia Shandlin. And we're almost back with Haritz's Election Overdose podcast, which will be fully back with you at the end of this week with a full episode. Devoted to elections in Israel. Why are we having a, another podcast about elections in Israel? Because we're having another election cycle in Israel, the fifth in three years. Yes. Finally, we can't get enough of it. We can't get enough. We, we simply can't get enough. And that's why Dahlia and I will be back with you every week from this Thursday until the bitter, probably, bitter end. Maybe it'll be a sweet end this time. Who knows? Well, we'll we've got four months to wait and see. And what, what are we going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about everything you need to know to understand the elections in Israel, including things that happened that week. Naturally, we're going to be talking about polls because I love talking about polls. We Every, will not ev- make predictions. Everyone loves polls. Do you think so? But people also love to hate polls. It's part of any good relationship. They love to love polls until the polls get it wrong, and then they love to hate polls. And we'll try and keep you abreast of of also of the future events, and we'll not just the polls. We'll be predicting every possible outcome, not just of the election, but every stage of the election. We have actually an important stage tonight, Dahlia. What's tonight's stage in the cycle? Tonight, the parties have to decide if they're splitting off into different factions. Now, this is part of the great, what I'm starting to call the political jiggle in Israel, which is that before elections, every party has to do something radical. Either we establish new parties, or parties collapse, or parties break up, or parties merge. Tonight, we have the deadline for parties breaking up. What does that mean for the system? So this is mainly a technical thing, but it could turn out to be important for some of the parties. There are various rules which we'll not go into, and they're so complex, most of the politicians don't understand them, about who can split away from an existing party and still keep what's a very important thing in an election campaign, the unit of election funding. Now, that's the money that the state allocates every Knesset member. Otherwise known as my taxes. Your taxes, mine as well, uh, for electioneering for all the many, many costs of an election campaign. And that obviously is a crucial thing for the parties. And it's also a whip. It's being used by the parties to keep their own members in line because there are various ways that if the party, sorry, if the, if the Knesset members split it in a certain way, they lose their, uh, th- their funding unit, goes back to the party. So that's the main issue. Yeah, we should say that the main reason this particular technical uh, mechanism was developed was to try to deter individuals from breaking away from a party that they were elected to serve and joining another party, which is a, s- a form of betrayal of the voters. But the laws say that if a certain faction within a party of sufficient size breaks away, then it can legitimately be considered part of a party and get part of the funding. And this is the day in which the parties kind of work out who are we going to allow to split away for various reasons. And the parties have their own their own internal mechanisms and considerations and calculations do they allow this this uh, faction to split away? Some of the parties are actually splitting in order to remerge. For example, uh, religious Zionism is now splitting into two because they think that well, that will help them to get more monitors on the election committees around the country. 
that will probably be disputed at the Central Election Commission. We'll see what happens with that further down the line. So this is like the first round of kind of probing foreplay, if you will, of the election cycle. But don't you think the most interesting potential split is the big, the really important one, not big, the tiny little party called Yamina? Because if they split, to my mind, I've started to see this as the end of the very long and historic road of the National Religious Party. Because that party is, in various iterations, a successor party to the National Religious Party. Does this mean that the old constituency of the national religious community is essentially collapsing? You've had it, listeners. This is why you need to come to us for that kind of quality content that we'll be talking about. In other words, you're not going to answer months. my question. <laughs> well, we don't have time. This is just a promo. True, but you're the only person who can really answer it with depth in this country. Perhaps, and that's why we'll do it at another another occasion in, in one of our full episodes. What else is happening or has happened in the last 24 hours? We've had Yair Lapid's unveiling as prime minister since he wasn't sworn in. Actually, he was sworn in a year ago as the alternate prime minister under the terms of the coalition agreement. Uh, therefore, there is no need for him to be sworn in now as prime minister. So he didn't have that very moving moment that a new prime minister goes up to the Knesset podium and swears, you know, pledges allegiance to Israel's laws. Although some people think it was moving when they switched chairs, and yet your Lapid took the prime minister's chair. Did you think it was moving? Maybe moving would be too strong for well, me they were, they personally. Were, they were moving. They were physically moving. Yeah. Did it move my soul? Probably not. No. But did yesterday's speech move your soul? No, because yesterday's speech was, I think, classic Yair Lapid. If anyone over the last 10 years tr- would have tried to imagine or script what Yair Lapid's first prime ministerial speech would look and sound like, it was exactly this. There was nothing surprising. This was classic Yair Lapid. This is the moment that Yair Lapid has been building up to, not just in his 10 years in politics, but I think 10 years and another 20 years as a journalist. This was the moment. Interestingly, there was no, there was no audience there. He was speaking to an empty room, to, to a camera screen, and, and we were all seeing basically the Prime Minister's office uh, live feed. And it was Yair Lapid. It was flawless. Every word was was pre-planned. There was everything there in advance. And he has personality. I have to say he delivered it with great uh, earnestness. <clears throat> I would say two particular points of the content stood out to me uh, within what was essentially, as you put it, a very prototypical kind of speech for Yair Lapid. But two points that I think he put in there very consciously, knowing that the people who needed to pick up on them would do so. One was that he mentioned the language of Israel's basic laws from 1992 respecting uh, basic human rights in Israel. And that is something that we haven't heard the top politician in this country, the top leader, the prime minister, talk about lately because Netanyahu's outgoing government would have been happy if those basic laws didn't exist at all. But he talked about the right of every person to freedom and dignity and uh, freedom of of profession, which is uh, the heart of those basic laws. It's what counts as a bill of rights in Israel, even though it's not as strong. How many Israelis picked up on that, do you think? I think that the people who wanted to hear it would pick up on it. And so if I had to quantify it, I would say all of the left, and that's about 20% of the electorate, and a big chunk of the center, and the center is about 25% of the electorate. So let's give, let's say half. Oh, well, that's not bad. Those are the people who are looking to hear those things. What was the second point that The second you point was on? that he mentioned, we think that the Abraham Accords are a blessing. We want peace with all our neighbors, including the Palestinians. I can't remember the last time... Uh, an Israeli prime minister talked about anything remotely like a future peace with the Palestinians. And that certainly was not a coincidence. He didn't just say that off the cuff. Yeah, but that is what you would have expected to hear from Yair Lapid. 
And I wasn't expecting it. No, I, no. I, I wasn't surprised because in my conversations with Lepid over the last two or three years, he has started to kind of very, very slowly, I wouldn't say drift because nothing is drifting. It's very clearly calibrated. But to move a couple of notches from, I don't I won't say to the left because he's he's in the centre, but from his centre-rightness to being just centrist now, I think, that, and I wasn't surprised by that. Uh, and I think that you know, Israeli political commentators have, have learned in the last few days uh, a word which is much more used in American politics, the Rose Garden campaign, which is a concept, if I'm not mistaken, was invented by Jimmy Carter in 1976 when he was running against President Ford, and he said that Ford is using the Rose Garden at the White House to stage events and to draw all the media attention while I'm just some anonymous uh, governor from Georgia and I'm not getting that kind of media attention. Funny, that sounds an awful lot like the response that Netanyahu gave. Yep. and this Which is was to what, say he's going to be using the platform of prime minister to do his campaign. And so Israeli commentators have been using that term, the Rose Garden campaign, because this is what Yair Lapid is doing. Now, Yair Lapid has four months now to establish himself in the minds of Israelis as a legitimate prime minister, both in his supporters and in the waverers, those who until now haven't taken that, that concept seriously. It seemed to them laughable. Well, and what seemed to me a little laughable was that Netanyahu's accusing Lapid of using the prime minister's platform for his campaign. I mean, Netanyahu, uh, you know, you, you, uh, he invented the concept. I mean, especially during Corona, he took the stage every night to have a dramatic press conference. It started to become a national joke. And that was all going on, of course, during campaigns. Did he need to give all those press conferences just for Corona? I don't know. But so, that's what acting prime ministers do with the podium. And but then what he does is accuse Yair Lapid of doing well, it. That's what leader of oppositions do. And now Netanyahu is a leader of opposition. And that's one of the things that's going to make this election different than the previous four in this long uh, multi-election cycle. But I think the fact that Lapid was standing there, and you mentioned all those press conferences with Netanyahu, in which that very light blue wall with the white letters in Hebrew and English, the prime minister's office, as the backdrop, that's so much something that we associate with Netanyahu. And actually, Bennett didn't do that many press conferences in the last year in that setting. And yesterday we had, last night, we had Lapid standing there as if reminding us, you see this wall here in the Prime Minister's office? You don't have to be Benjamin Netanyahu to stand at this wall and speak to the nation. I agree. And now I want to ask you, I mean, if the, if this is turning into a, a personality contest between Netanyahu and Lapid, I, I'd be curious what you think, because I want to try to run through, I think it would be a nice thing for us to do on the show. What are the big themes that might actually make this election different from the previous four elections. Is this going to be a personality contest between Netanyahu and Lapid as one of those themes? Well, Netanyahu didn't want to have that kind of being compared to someone else. He wanted everyone to, to be seen as very much his inferiors. And we saw it in the way he treated Benny Gantz in the first three election campaigns, as if Gantz is a joke. We saw it back in 2015, the way he treated Yitzhak uh, Bougie Herzog. It was always Tsipi Vibushi. Current president. Yeah. Uh, it was always Tsipi and Bougie. It was like the you know those two nicknames of not very serious characters. He treated them as children in his campaign ads. He, Kindergarten children. Literally in, in, in one of those spoof campaigns. They ads. were very clever, though. They were extremely clever. And this is and now Netanyahu has to try and do the same thing to Yair Lapid. But Yair Lapid is someone who is much, much more difficult to, to redefine him in a way which will be convenient for Netanyahu because Yair Lapid has spent the last 30 years defining himself for the Israeli public and he's done so extremely well. He's got all the way to the top in doing that. 
And for Netanyahu now to try and take him on and, as, you know, as, as, like you said, in a personality contest, it's it's a risk because here is someone who has who I wouldn't say is Netanyahu's equal. I'm not sure who's better at it, but he is someone who can certainly match Netanyahu for the skills at defining yourself and defining your rival. I don't disagree. I just think that it's a risk for one more reason, and that's that I think the opposition to Netanyahu over the course of the last year, since we've been watching this government and seeing what would happen, I think that the opposition camps to Netanyahu were so relieved to have a different government in place. And I think that they're so terrified of him coming back that in addition to whatever support Lapid has for his stellar personality, he has built-in support from anybody who's against Netanyahu coming back. And I think that they would vote for a turtle if the turtle would run. What else do or the you hair think? Or the hair. And actually, that might be a better metaphor because Lapid really did wait very patiently for this. And so what else do you think are going to be the really thematic and interesting differences about this campaign from last? Well, it's, it's, a long, it's a slightly longer campaign. Israeli campaigns are long, but this one's going to be f- a full four months. And it's happening at a slightly different timing than the previous one. So we're going to have the long summer holidays, the first two months of the, of the campaign. Then we're sort of kind of coming back from holidays. The campaign will sort of restart. And then... We're breaking up again for Chagiv, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and then we're going to be we're going to be voting, and it's going to be very difficult, I think, for all the parties to kind of maintain a tempo, the right kind of campaign tempo throughout this period, and and this could play once again to to Lapid's favor because Lapid needs this period of normalcy. He doesn't want the campaign to intrude too much on this period in where, where he'll be showing Israelis what a great prime minister and what a natural prime minister he is. That's why he's going already on Tuesday to to Paris for a few hours to meet Emmanuel Macron. That's why he has this wonderful opportunity in a week and a half to host uh, President Joe Biden here. He'll want this period of look at me at work being a prime minister He'll want that to last as long as possible. And I think there was an interesting hint in in his speech both last night and this morning, his first cabinet, where his remarks were, the opening remarks were were obviously shown. He used a word that prime ministers very rarely use. He used the word crisis. Now, prime ministers don't like to say the word crisis because it sounds as if they're not in control. But he mentioned twice, both last night and this morning, he mentioned the education crisis. And I think that's... A really telling thing. Now, words in Lapid's speeches are never; they're all they're always there for a reason. And we are having a prolonged teacher strike. This is all exactly. coming in the background and of like I, I, other I, big story. In and I think yeah, Lapid is looking at the treat at the teacher strike as an opportunity. He's got now two months together with his political ally Avigdor Lieberman to solve the strike. Yifat Shashabit on the education minister is barely going to be involved in this. It'll be him, him and Lieberman. And I think what he's planning is over July and August have these really dramatic rounds of negotiations with the teachers' unions, which will end at some point in August, just on time for an orderly start to the school year at the beginning of September. And those will be his this demonstration of his prime ministerial capabilities. I agree with that potential. I think that's what they want to do. I think the other interesting thing about this long period of time is I'm not sure exactly how this is connected, but I have been noticing that one of the key themes of the opposition, specifically the Likud, everybody in Likud who's talking to the media is saying the country's in crisis, but not education crisis. The country's in an economic crisis. And the government, meanwhile, is boasting of its economic record. And I think what we see here, which American listeners will understand and be so familiar with, is a divergence of the truth. What's really happening? Is Israel in an economic crisis or is Israel going through economic recovery? The opposition, led by Likud, is trying to make the case time after time that the country, that the people are suffering with the economic crisis. 
And the government is trying to prove that actually the indicators are good. Unemployment is down. The budget deficit is down. Uh, we've recovered from corona. We didn't have closures. So I think that during that time, we're going to see competing narratives as well as competing personalities. And I think what's going to be the biggest theme of this election, and this is the Jews against the Arabs. Now, this coalition, which has now imploded but did last for a year and managed to unseat Netanyahu, would not have been there without the inclusion of Ram, the United Arab List. It's for members who had allowed this this coalition to have a majority for when it when it did have a majority. And on the one hand, this was an unprecedented move, a move that even Netanyahu himself had a large part in because he was courting Rams, Mansour Abbas for quite for quite Even a though while. he denies it now. Well he denies it, but he doesn't deny the fact that he did meet with Abbas three times. He just says it wasn't primaries. about that. Yeah. But that will be, I think, the one of the biggest themes, already seeing it as the, one of the biggest themes of this election campaign, this narrative of Netanyahu and his allies, the four parties, Likud and the three other parties which are together with them, that we are the ones safeguarding Israel's Jewish character. Nobody really knows what the Jewish character is, unless you want to go into anti-Semitic uh, ideas. Well, we do have a basic law that tries to define it. but Like many laws, it doesn't really define character. Uh, it defies rather than defining character. Exactly. But it does alienate a lot of people. It does. And Yair it voted against, and that was a big thing. That was kind of a signaling moment. But this is going to be the really main thing, I think, of the election. We're going to see Netanyahu and his people saying, we're the Jews, we're standing up for Jewish values, for Jewish character, and you are the government or the coalition which agrees to have terror-supporting Muslim Brotherhood's members in it. I have to say that I don't see this as something new. This is the kind of uh, rhetoric that's been going on, generally coming from Likud, and in the past also Avigdor Lieberman, for years of election cycles, Jews against Arabs. I actually have a different term for it, and I think I call it incitement. It is none other than incitement. When you try to pit one group in society against the other for their ethnic, uh, ethnocultural identification, I think it is one of the factors that contributed to the riots we saw last year, and I think if the Likud sees that they can possibly make this any worse, this kind of incitement, that you know, any new rounds of violence will be their responsibility. And we'll delve into that at length and in depth over the next four months. Yes, we will. Great depth. We will also bring guests occasionally. Occasionally. And we might even have little fun parts of the show where we talk about trivia and history and maybe even some music, if we're lucky. So, yes, so you'll be back with us on Thursday evenings. We'll be recording on Thursday mornings and then doing some technical wizardry here in the Arit studio so join us at the end of this week and on every other, and every week for the next four months so have a great summer a fantastic election Wait, what's your plans for the summer Dahlia? to think about elections ah, what a waste <laughs> I think it's more a waste of my taxpayer money but this is where we are here we are well we'll see each other on Thursday see you again. on Thursday And that's it for Haaretz Weekly. Special thanks to my guest, U.S. Ambassador Thomas Nides, to producer and editor Shani Aviram, and to Anshel Pfeffer and Dalia Shenlin. Until next time, I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Shalom from Tel Aviv.